Amen. What a great time celebrating our risen Christ who died, who rose again, who is coming again, remembering his faithfulness in our lives. So we want to welcome our Lexington and Shelby campuses this morning. Can you give them a hand? Uh, we love you guys. And let me just say to our Shelby campus, uh, you know, we try to predict when uh, Pastor Josh and Hope's baby was going to be born. And so we planned out this series so that at the front end there would be a break in there, thinking that baby would be born. And uh, it didn't happen until this past week. But they do have a new little one, and we're excited for Pastor Josh and Hope. So thank you, Shelby, for your patience in trying to help us plan. Uh, we're glad to have you with us uh, this morning. Uh, I did want to mention a couple of things here before we dive in. We do have about 40 children left through our adopted child. This is a chance for us to give back to our community. And uh, we get to support over 550 families, but then give out the gifts for over 1,000 families in our community. And uh, this is also in Lexington and Shelby. There are families specific from that community. And so we hope you'll grab one of those cards at the tables in the lobbies at every campus and be a part of helping give Christmas to a child. This gives us a great insight and inroads to share the good news of Jesus Christ, and we get the chance to sit down with families, parents, grandparents, social workers, get to pray with them, and so this is a great opportunity just to give back to our community and love the children that are a little bit less fortunate in the, at this Christmas season, so we hope you commit to that. Also, I want to mention uh, some exciting things. We have next week our baptism service. If you have not signed up to be biblically baptized, you have not been baptized by immersion as a result of your salvation in Jesus Christ, we would love to help you make a public declaration of your inward faith. And that is what baptism is. It is a public declaration that says, I know Christ, and I want everybody to know that. And it is a step of obedience to say, I give my life to Christ as a picture of my willingness to go to wherever God calls me. And so uh, we hope you'll do that. We have many that have signed up. Stop by our next steps areas at every campus, and you can be a part of baptism next week. Don't miss next week as we get to celebrate with those who are making that public declaration. And if you haven't done that, make sure you sign up for that. Also, I wanted to mention uh, about our Christmas services. Uh, we have six services available this Christmas season, and uh, we would love for you to grab these little cards. We have them at the info centers at every campus. Next week, we'll have them kind of in a, in a place, a prominent place where you can grab a bunch of these. I have challenged myself to give out 100 invite cards, and so I'm going to try to stir the competitive juices in our church. I dare you to beat me. Uh, you know, we've prepared these services. Our production team, our creative arts team has done a great job of making these services cater to those who do not know Christ. So this would be a great, a great inroad to say, I want to bring a, a friend, I want to bring a neighbor, I want to bring a family member to be able to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And our team has done a fantastic job putting together a fantastic program that is Christ-centered and gospel-proclaiming. And so we hope you'll join us. Grab some of these cards, give them out. I'm going to give out 100 of them. If you give out more than that, let me know. I might give you something. Uh, I'll give you a gift for beating me if you do that. Um, and then if you bring those people with you, what, what an amazing thing it will be. Six services to choose from, and we want to make a big difference for the cause of Christ. Uh, one more thing I wanted to mention. I, I just want to say a big thank you. You know, this past Thanksgiving, there are many people that don't get to enjoy uh, a meal that many of us do get to enjoy. And we had it through our city center in downtown Mansfield. Uh, we were able to serve over 100 people with a Thanksgiving dinner. And I just want to say a big thank you to our church. 
You know, three years ago, we launched a campaign, and it was called the Vision 2020 Campaign. It runs all the way through uh, 2020, February of 2020, and, and so if you're a part of that, you're giving to that, if you would like to jump on board, we can still have you for the next few months to give toward that campaign, and it was a three-year three campaign to do really three things, to, to launch a city center in the downtown area, to, uh, to see campuses be, come to life. We didn't know the timing of that, and then to pay off this mortgage, which, by the way, we will, at the beginning of the year, we will celebrate that as we get to the end of that, uh, that road. And so we're excited about that. But our city center, and I'm so, so impressed with uh, your call as a church, our call as a church, to be a church for our city. Remember, we created a hashtag, for our city, for Mansfield. And I love being a part of a church that loves our city, loves our region, loves our cities, Lexington, Shelby, around the community, Ashland, all over the place. We, I love the fact that we have, love a, have a church that wants to make an inroads with, for the sake of the gospel, for the glory of Jesus Christ in those places. And so thank you for your faithfulness. I, I so appreciate our city center staff, Pastor Jesse, uh, Monica Christie, who oversees our, 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 our director, program director down there. Uh, I think of Josh and Nicole Blakely, who kind of spearheaded some of the work there with our Thanksgiving dinner, and we were able to serve over 100 people for Thanksgiving. Many of you served. Thank you. By the way, we had many more hands than we even needed. I heard there were like 300 desserts. You can't get better than Thanksgiving with 300 desserts. Um, and so thank you for your faithfulness to love our city well. Uh, if you would take your Bibles out with me and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4, 2 Timothy chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, there is one of the seat back in front of you at every campus. You can turn with us to page 996, 2 Timothy chapter 4. We're in this series that we've been journeying right through 2 Timothy, looking at word for word what Paul writes here, the last letter to his young protege, Timothy. Timothy was a spiritual son to Paul, and so Paul is writing his last will and testament. These are the last words of the last letter that Paul writes, and these are written to his young spiritual son, Timothy, a pastor at the church of Ephesus. Paul is sitting in a prison in a hole in the ground, and he is writing to Timothy, and he's saying, Timothy, in a world, in a culture that is running from God and against God, I, I want to charge you to run to God and for God. We saw in chapter one, he said, Timothy, do not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We saw at the end of chapter one, he says, Timothy, do not quit. You feel like throwing in the towel, don't quit. Fear is overwhelming you, frustration is overtaking you, do not quit, keep going. We come to chapter three, and he says, here's how you do that, don't quit, don't, don't give up, but stay in tune to the word of God. The word of God is profitable, it's profitable for our correction, for our teaching, for reproof, for instruction in righteousness. Do not give up on what God's word says. And so here's Paul writing to Timothy and saying, keep going, keep going. The culture is getting difficult, but you keep going. Here we are going to look at, as we make this final lap around this book, uh, we're going to look at the final words of the final chapter of the final charge to Timothy. We're going to look at probably one of the pinnacle moments of this book, the la really the last charge that Paul gives of his ministry before he is put to death. Now, when I read these words, it's one of my, one of my favorite passages. I, I can't but to think back when I was in middle school. I don't know if it was true when you were in middle school, but at least where I lived in Maryland, in middle school, they did these, uh, they called them, called it uh, self-esteem classes. 
And it was all about making sure you had the right self-esteem. And so they would talk about things like goals and priorities and how to think about yourself. And I remember going through this training from fifth grade to eighth grade about what is good self-esteem. And we had these classes, we would get out of class to have these special classes where people come in and teach us about self-esteem. I went to the inner city public school, and so I remember as I was going to school, uh, they did this, this project where you had to write about what you hoped to be. And they asked the question, what do you want to be when you grow up? Anybody ever heard that question before? What do you want to be when you grow up? If you're young, you're probably getting that question now. What do you want to be when you grow up? And then you eventually get to an age and you're like, I still want to be something when I grow up. I know people that are 50 and 60 that are still thinking about what they want to be when they grow up. But the question, it's a question we ask a lot of people. I remember for this project, I had a plan. In seventh grade, I wrote down that I wanted to be the president of the United States. That was my dream. That was my goal. I wanted to be the president of the United States. Um, That's kind of funny to think about. I am so grateful that I am not the president of the United States. I wouldn't want that job. You couldn't get me close to that job. No, thank you. Uh, but I wanted to be the president. And then I slowly changed in high school. I thought maybe I wanted to be an astronaut. I love space. I love the idea of space. I didn't love math. And so that didn't really work out very well. And then I decided maybe I'll be a major league baseball player. I played baseball Maryland, in Maryland. Baseball's huge. And so uh, I was played and had a, a good, good career in baseball. But that wasn't it. Like I, I then found out as I was trying out. By the way, one year I tried out for the Kansas City Royals. And uh, then I learned that I was too short and stubby to play major league baseball. They weren't looking for a guy like me. And, uh, and so I gave up that, right? And slowly down the road, I ended up going to a trip to South Africa on a missions trip and realized that God had called me into ministry and that I felt the Lord was calling me to be a pastor. And here I am uh, doing what I believe God has called me to do. But we all have that question, right? What do you want to be when you grow up? We, we've gotten that question when we were younger. Now I want you to think about that question. Many of us begin our life with this dream of what we think life should look like. Many of us have these goals about what we like to achieve in life. A study came out last year on a secular study, and they found that 92% of the goals that we set are never achieved. Think about that. 92% of the goals we set are actually never achieved. For whatever reason, we in America love to set goals, but we don't like to finish them. We like to initiate things or have ideas about things, but very little follow-up in being able to complete those things. We, as Americans, love to set goals, have dreams, but we actually don't go after them. We set goals, but never achieve them. We dream, but never fulfill them. And I remember, as a young person, learning this, and today it's still true, and they teach this in business as well, that if you have a goal, if you have a mission, if you have a a thing you're trying to accomplish... The way you have to do that is not just by thinking and dreaming about it, but now you have to work the problem backwards, don't you? Like if you have this dream that the dream is I want to buy a car, I've got to think about this backwards. I've got to start by saving money. I've got to take steps. And so when you think about the dreams and goals we have in life, it actually is viewed backwards. Here's what I want to get to. I've got to start here. I want you to think about this in relation to this, our spiritual journey, our spiritual life, our Christian lives. Think about this for a moment. We all know that at the end, we all have the same fate. We all know that 100% of us will die. All of us will die lest the Lord return. We know the end of our lives 
there will be death. The Bible repeats this over and over again, by the way, that life is temporal. It says in James 4, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Or how about Psalm 39, verses 4 and 5? O Lord, make me know my life end. Make me know know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a mere hand breath. I love that because a hand breath is how far your breath goes out on a cold day, how far you can see it. You've made my days a few hand breaths and my lifetime is nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Our life is short. It's like a vapor. It appears and then vanishes. Our life is like a hand breath that goes out of our mouth and dissipates into the air. It happens, it comes, and it goes. It's quick. It's very short. You would think that us knowing the end of the story, knowing that we're going to die lest the Lord return, would challenge us and motivate us to then look backwards in life and figure out how to live this thing and be all in. And yet, Scholars were saying, in fact, Barnard Research came out with a study across the country, and they found that only one out of ten people believed that they were going to end the race of the Christian life well. Only one out of every ten professing believer believed that they were going to finish well. For some, they were in the wrong game. They were in the wrong stadium. They weren't even on the right track. They weren't living for Christ. They professed them, but they weren't living for him. For others, it was a, a battle with sin that constantly entangled them, and just over and over again, it slowed down the race that they were running. For some, it was a distraction. And they, they, Yes, they had Jesus, but they were looking at everything else in life, and it was slowing them down. For, for others, it, it was, it was this, this idea that we, but we find the Christian life not as easy as we think it should be. And so we don't finish well. Others, you feel like you're crawling across the finish line. You wonder, man, I just want to finish. I'm barely going to make it, but I'm going to finish. Let me ask you this morning, my friends, how will you finish? How will you end? That's exactly where Paul goes at the end of this letter. How will you finish? And how will you end? If you're going to answer that question you're going, to, you're going to have to base it upon the decisions that you make today. If you're going to look at the end of your life and we look at life backwards, we have a goal, we have an end in mind, and we have to then begin to make the plans today, make the decisions today, make the steps today that are going to lead to this life that we hope to leave behind us. Take a look with me, 2 Timothy chapter 4, and we're going to read Paul's words here at the end of his life to Timothy Chapter 4, verse 1, it says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and they'll turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. But as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which is, which is the, the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his 
appearing. I, I want to look at four observations right from this text as to how you and I can finish well. How can we make sure we, at the end of our lives, do not finish by crawling across the finish line, do not finish by, by maybe just barely making it, but actually finish the race that God has put in front of us well, to finish this fight well. I want you to notice the end of verse 5. It's kind of a summary statement of that little section, verses 1 through 5, and it says, Timothy, fulfill your ministry. This is number one. Every one of us has a ministry to fulfill. If you're going to finish well, you have to understand that God has called you into a ministry. Every single one of us here has a ministry that God has called us to in order to fulfill. In fact, take a look at what it says there. It's kind of emphatic. Fulfill your ministry. It doesn't say fulfill my ministry. It doesn't say fulfill your spouse's ministry. It doesn't say fulfill your family's ministry. It is fulfill your ministry. It's personal. For Timothy, it was personal. In fact, Paul tells Timothy what his ministry is. And in some sense, our ministry overlaps Timothy's ministry. Our ministry is connected to Timothy's ministry. Notice what he says in verse 1. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. You and I are called to be the megaphone of God's gospel to a world that desperately needs it. You and I are called to present this gospel boldly. We talked about this last week, that you and I have a responsibility to carry on the responsibility of the gospel proclamation to a world that needs to hear it. We are called to preach the word. But I want you to notice here what he says first. He says, I charge you, Timothy. But he doesn't say, I charge you, Timothy, as a spiritual father. He doesn't say, I charge you, Timothy, as an apostle, which would have carried great weight. He doesn't say, I charge you, Timothy, as a leader of the church, which would have been true. He says, I charge you by the presence of God in Christ, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. I want you to notice that. You know why? Because Paul knows us well. Paul knows Timothy well. He, he knows that the human instinct would have been, hear the words, preach the word. And most of us will say, I can't do that. Like, I'm not that good. I mean, I can't. I don't have many gifts. I'm not. Fulfill your ministry, man. I'm not that gifted. Why would God ever use me? You might say, well, wait a minute. You know, I, I'm not able to speak very well. I don't, I'm not very articulate. You might say, well, man, I can't. I don't have big gifts. Like, I can't sing. I can't really. I'm not very good with this kind of stuff. And yet you have a story in Christ. And so here's what he's getting at, right? Notice the motivation of this is not based upon Timothy's ability. The motivation of this is not based upon Timothy's gifting. Now, is it true that gifting and ability matter? Yes, absolutely. God uses our gifts. God uses our abilities. God uses our experiences. God uses our personalities. However, it's not based upon our doing. It's based upon the righteous judge of the living and the dead who has a kingdom that is coming. I love this. He says, I charge you in the presence of God. This is not Paul speaking. This is him saying, this is what God desires for you. This is what God is going to enable you. God's calling is, in, is enabling. None of us can make, a, make an excuse because God will enable us to do his work when we're obedient to him. And so it starts with God. I love this. This is freeing. Why? Because it's not based upon my goodness. It's not based upon my ability. It's not based upon what I can do. It's based upon the goodness of God that overflows me. Can I get raw for a moment with you? I've wrestled with this truth over this past year. This has been a very interesting year for me. As many of you, I've walked through some health 
uh, health issues. I had a blood clot back in, in January, spent five days at Ohio State University, and then I was on a journey to find out why I got it. Now, it, it was a blood clot in a very peculiar place, very difficult place, a place that someone my age never would have it. And I've been journeying through that, found out that I have a blood disease, and have now been going to the Cleveland Clinic and trying to figure out the best course of treatment. Um, I'll feel great for four or five days, and then I'll have a day where I'll run a fever, feel sick, feel miserable, just can't, I mean, sometimes I feel like I can't even function. Now, with that has come big bouts of up and down emotions and different things, depression, different things that have, that have been part of that. And so I literally can go five days and feel absolutely normal, 100%, and then all of a sudden get hit with this thing and never know when it's going to happen. And so it's always awkward and odd. And there have been moments, and I'm just going to be honest with you, there have been moments in this journey where I've wondered, am I even able to keep up? God, are you sure that you're calling me to lead Crossroads? I don't know if I can. I mean, our church is too big. It, it, needs, it needs a leader that's full health, right? And, and, and I mean, we've we got over 3,000 people that come to church here. I mean, how do I keep up with that? And God, I've actually wrestled, God, maybe you're calling me to go to, uh, just go pastor a small country church somewhere where there's not a lot of pressure, not a lot of... And, and then I come back to this. And here's what's happened in this journey. I'm sharing this. By the way, I'm not going anywhere. Nobody worry. I'm just sharing my heart for a moment. This is, this is where I'm at. And this is what I see here. In, in the midst of this journey this year, what God has done is he has emptied my identity in just being a pastor. What, what I found this year is a lot of who I was was tied to the fact that I, I was a pastor. I've been a pastor. I, I, I started as a lead pastor at 28. I was a young adult pastor before that. I've been in ministry most of my life now, majority of my life. And, and, and what God did is he emptied my hands of thinking that this is my identity. And God shared with me, Dave, this is not about your ability or your, your willingness to be a pastor. It's about me. And I love this because now I feel absolutely free. I do. Because I'm not trying to match up to what I think is needed. I'm just trying to be faithful to God. And it's given me freedom. So what's happened is it's transformed my idea to say my identity is not in my ability. My identity is not in what I do. My identity is in who Christ is, the righteous judge of the living and the dead, who will come in his kingdom. And it reminds us that our freedom is found in being able to live this out wherever we go in the place, in the time, in the season that God calls us to. There's freedom in that. So you might be here and say, man, I don't know if I can do this. Welcome to the club. God enables you. God empowers you. God calls you. And that's what Paul is getting at. He's saying, Timothy, you don't preach the word because I'm telling you. You're preaching the word because Christ is the one who is the judge of the living and the dead. You present it, trust him with it. You just be faithful to this. Now, why is he calling him to do this? Notice, by the way, preach the word. I love this word. It literally means to herald. Uh, we don't use the word herald in our day, but a herald back in, in uh, Paul's day was when the king wanted to get a message out to the kingdom, there was no Fox News that he could go on. Right? It wasn't like we have a presidential address happening on Fox News at 10 o'clock. Nothing like that. They had to get the news out by sending out heralds. And heralds would go out into the streets and the cities, go out across the kingdom, and they would present the message of the king. Now, if you've ever watched the, the British, they have this idea. It's historic, but they have this idea. If you remember when uh, Princess Charles and um, Prince William and Kate, and then you have Prince Harry and Meghan when they had their babies. Um, do you remember the baby was born in this building, and outside, if you ever watch it, there's a guy who opens a scroll. That's all tradition. And he opens a scroll and he says, hear ye, hear ye, hear ye. And he gives this great 
declaration that a baby has been born. That's what he is. He is a town crier. It's a town herald. That's what a herald does. A herald goes out and presents the message. So he says, Timothy, you are a herald of the kingdom. You are a herald of Jesus Christ. You are called to go and present this gospel truth that Christ has came and he is the judge of the living and the dead and that he is coming again with his kingdom. Now why? Notice verse three. Because there's a time coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but they'll have itching ears and they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. He says there is a day coming where people are going to want to have their ears itched or scratched. You have an itch, you need them scratched. This term actually is an animal term. Our, our English really doesn't do it justice, but Paul is being a bit sarcastic here because what he's saying is, you ever watch a dog who has ears that are itching? What, what do they do? I mean, they dig it, dig it, they dig it. Or if you're like my little dog, she goes in the living room and she lays down on her head and goes around like this. I mean, it just, I'm like, see boys, it's, it's mom's dog. <laughs> we call her Crazy Daisy. Um, she's a little daisy dog, and, and she'll, they'll do anything to have their ears scratched, and they'll come up, and they'll bump you, and they'll, they'll want you to scratch their ears. That's the image Paul's saying. There are people that their ears are going to be itching, and so they're going to find someone to scratch them. The problem is they're going to find somebody that wants to fulfill what they desire, right? They have an itch. I need this. I want this. I want it to sound like this. I want it to, I want it to appease me, and they'll find something that will satisfy them. They'll want to have their ears scratched. They will turn from the truth and they will go their own way. They'll have no appetite for the true message of the gospel. They will tune it out to soothe their own passions. Though the message is needed by all, it will not be heeded by all. So he says, Timothy, people will want their ears itched. For you though, he says, here's the deal, verse five, as for you, be sober-minded. Literally, have your mind under control. Pay attention to how you're thinking, Timothy. Why? Because you can begin to want your ears scratched as well. Pay attention to how you think. Keep your mind guarded. Take every thought captive in Christ. Why? Because your mind will betray you. Pay attention to how you're thinking. Why? Because because eventually those thoughts will plant seeds. He, He says here, listen, remember in your mind, you're thinking nothing is secretive to God. God sees what we, hears and sees what we think. And so he says, pay attention to how you're thinking. Make sure your thinking is gospel-centered. Make sure your thinking is based upon the word of God. And then he says this, he says, endure suffering. This is kind of a theme of the book. If we're going to finish well, we gotta endure suffering. In chapter two, verse three, share in suffering. Chapter three, verse 12, those who are godly will be persecuted. We looked at those verses. He says, listen, if you're going to be faithful to the end, you have to endure suffering. That means that you can't judge your life based upon the successes or the failures. Why? Because suffering reminds us of our need for Christ. And so he says, endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Every one of us has been called to a gospel ministry, a ministry of proclamation of the gospel. God has put you in a place, in a time, in a season, to be a herald of his good news. You might think, man, this job is not, I'm not allowed to really talk about these things. You can quietly pray for people. Ask God to give you opportunities. You want to find every time I've prayed, God, give me an opportunity. Guess what happens? An opportunity presents itself. 
It presents itself. I, I, I was praying this the other day. I, I walked, and this is so bizarre. I was, I was in a store, and someone saw me. I could tell they recognized me, and so I started talking with them, and they then shared their soul with me. They just all of a sudden bore their soul. And I just, right there in the grocery store, we prayed together. We prayed. I, I shared a bit of the gospel with them and just prayed with them. This happens if you just, man, whenever I just pray, God, give opportunities. All of a sudden, it happens. Uh, all of a sudden it happens. Maybe for you, just praying, God, give me an opportunity at work to have some conversations. Maybe I'm not allowed to have it. Maybe somebody at lunch would want to have one, or maybe after work, someone would want to talk. God, give me opportunities in my neighborhood. Give me opportunities to see my neighbor. And what happens now when you see your neighbor out raking leaves, you don't just go inside because you don't want to deal with them. You start to think, wait, I need to go talk to them. This could be an opportunity. And so we pray, God, give us these opportunities. Fulfill your ministry. Number two, if we want to finish well, we have to see the Christian life as a constant pattern of pouring out. That the Christian life is a constant pattern of pouring out. Notice what Paul says, verse 6, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. Paul here is using Old Testament language. Back in the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 28, and then again in Numbers 28, we see this repetition of what a drink offering is. It was something that was given in the tabernacle and eventually the temple. It was where a drink would be poured out on the altar by the high priest. The priest would pour this out as a testament to two things. You would pour out the drink offering. Usually it was wine, the best of wine, and it was poured out, and it did two things. It said to God, first of all, God, I, I want to give you the best. I want you to be honored by me. And secondly, as it would be poured out on the hot coals, it would evaporate and burn, and it would give a good smell throughout the tabernacle, throughout the temple. So the second part of that was, God, I want to honor you, and I want to make sure my life is a sweet aroma, a pleasing aroma to you. So here's Paul, and he's saying, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. The, the cup is being tipped over. It is being poured out. May I honor you, and may it be pleasing in the way that I've lived. Here's where I think Paul's getting at. Every one of us, whether intentional or not, is a drink offering being poured out to God. Our lives are being poured out, and if you know life, it may seem to start slow, but all of a sudden at the end, it starts to speed up, doesn't it? I mean, months and days become moments and seconds. I mean, you hear young people, high schoolers, and you're like, man, I just can't wait to get out of high school. I can't wait to get done college. I can't wait to meet maybe someone. I can't wait maybe to have kids done one day. I can't wait to hang out with friends. I can't wait to freedom to have a job. And, right? You might think, man, I can't wait for these things in life. Can I tell you what happens? And everybody will tell this to you, and you won't believe them. They'll say, listen, man, enjoy life because it speeds up. And then you hit 20, and you're like, that's not true. Man, there's more, there's more. Then you hit 30, still, it's not that bad. And then you hit 40, and all of a sudden you realize, Facebook says it all. I can't wait till the weekend. And then at the end of the weekend, I can't believe the weekend's over. I can't wait till Friday. And then Sunday's over. Right, what happens? Life starts to pass by. The drink becomes a little faster, doesn't it? Anybody of age here that would agree to that? You know that life gets faster as you get older, doesn't it? And all of a sudden, that drink is beginning to be poured out. Every one of us is being poured out. The question is, what are we pouring into? What are we pouring out? What is happening with our life? So some, your life is being poured out, and it's all about job. Nothing wrong with job, but your life is being poured out. It's all about your job. You're, you're being poured out. It's all about sports. You're being poured out. It's all about a pursuit of finances and success and whatever. You're being poured out. Oh, if I just get that promotion, you're pouring out energy for those things. And what Paul does is say, Timothy, don't forget that you're being poured out as a drink offering 
And that drink offering is for the Lord. Honor him. Live a life pleasing to him. May our lives be poured out as a sweet aroma for his glory. I remember, I uh, love reading autobiographies. I read an autobiography on Nate Saint. Nate Saint was one of the missionaries that was with Jim Elliott. Remember Jim Elliott who uh, they were back in the 50s going to reach the people in Ecuador, specifically in a, a Wa'adani tribe. And while there, they began to build a relationship they were eventually killed on the island. And Nate Saint was actually the pilot. There were five men. Nate Saint was the pilot. And in his autobiography, it says this about this idea of being poured out like a drink offering. It says, people who do not know the Lord ask, why in the world will we waste our lives as missionaries to people who are savages? They forget that they too are expending their lives. And when the bubble has burst, they will have nothing of eternal significance to show for the years they have potentially wasted. What was he getting at? Why, he was like, why is everybody saying, why are you being a missionary? He's saying, at the end of my life, I'm going to be poured out, and when, when, the, when the bubble bursts, my life is going to matter for something. Now, that does not mean every one of us has to go to a, a, a tribe to do that. But you're called to a tribe. I'm called to a tribe. You're called to proclaim the gospel. You're called to honor Christ with your life. Right? All of us have the same calling as Christians. That leads to the third thing. Live with the end of mind. Number three, live with the end of mind. Notice what Paul says next. Verse six. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Here we see Paul's thinking about the fact that he is departing. It says his departure is at hand. I love this, by the way, this term departure. It's the Greek word loosening. It's not the idea of goodbye, it's the idea of loosening. And the reason for that is because it has kind of four meanings that it was used for in the Greek. Number one, it was used as a nautical term. Meaning, when you would loosen the ropes of a boat on a dock and you would send it out in the harbor, it was that the boat was leaving and it was going to another harbor. And if you've ever been on a boat or ever been on a cruise and there are people waving at you as you leave, that's the image is you loosen the ropes, you release the boat, and it goes out into the harbor, and it goes out into the mystery of what is next. It's, it's loosening. He says, he says here, I'm departing. I'm on a boat heading to another harbor. Secondly, it was a military term. In the military, when you would set camp, you would lay out your tent, and then when you would pick up camp, you would, you would fold up the tent. And this word literally meant to loosen the tent and fold it up. It was the idea that your tent would be folded and you were ready to go to the next place for battle. I think of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says this kind of language. He says in 2 Corinthians 5, For in this tent we groan, longing to put on a heavenly dwelling. He says this body is a tent, and this tent will one day be folded, and we're longing for a heavenly dwelling. There will be a day where this tent will be folded, put in the ground, and yet we'll long for that heavenly dwelling that will come with Christ. This was also not only a military term, it was also an agricultural term. When a farmer would be out in the field and the work was done for the day, they would have to take the yoke off of the oxen, they would have to put the tools away. That's the image. And maybe you were out there and you're doing yard work or you're raking leaves. What happens when you're done? You put the tools away. The labor is done. It feels good. You're satisfied. You're tired, but you're satisfied. That's the image. He says, this word literally means my departure. I'm done my work. Now it's time to rest. And it was also a term used for a prisoner who is being released from prison. So here's a Paul, a man of faith. And what he's saying, instead of looking at his imminent death as a horrible evil, 
He saw it as a great gain. Think about this. Instead of being tied to an earthly harbor, he was ready to set sail for a heavenly harbor. Instead of dwelling in a cheap, decrepit, temporary tent, he's about to move on to a permanent home. Instead of toiling on forever, he saw that he had rest from his labors. Instead of remaining a prisoner in a cell forever, he saw himself as changing his residence from a prison to a palace. He says, my departure has come. And he takes delight in this departure, the departure that all of us will have. Now, notice his confidence. He says, my departure has come, but I have fought the good fight. I have finished my race. I have kept the faith. This is what it looks like to finish well. First of all, we fight the fight. You and I right now are in a fight. We're in a fight over sin. We're in a fight for our lives. We're in a fight for our souls. If you don't know Christ, there's a fight for you. There's a fight for us. There's a fight for the cause of the gospel in a world turning away from God. There's a fight that we're in. We're in a battle at all moments. The Bible makes this abundantly clear. We are fighting a fight. The question, will we fight well? Will we fight to win? Will we fight? The word here, by the way, the word fight is the word agonizomai. It's where we get our word agony. Are we agonizing well in the fight that God has given to us? Warriors are only as worthy as their cause. Are you you wrapping your life in the cause of what Jesus has called you to? Secondly, finish the race. You and I are in a race. And we are called to run that race as to finish it. We're running that race. And you don't run a race to lose, do you? You run the race to win. We're all running. There's obstacles in the way. There's situations that arise. There's moments we fall and falter. The question is, do we get back up and keep running in the race of the Christian life? And then lastly, he says, keep the faith. You and I are called to hold on to the faith, to keep the faith to hold on to the the faith that God has called us to, to not give up, to not quit, to not give in, to hold on for dear life. By the way, I read this, it reminds me, years ago I went went water skiing, and I was out water skiing, and at the time I was a little more athletic, and so I'm out there water skiing, I feel like I'm doing pretty well, and then all of a sudden this rogue little wave hits me, and I wipe out, but I wipe out and my skis go behind me, so I go flat, holding onto the, the rope, my, I go flat onto my face. For some reason, my brain could not tell my hands to let go. There was a survival instinct, and so I'm holding on to the, to the, to the rope, and literally my face is bouncing off the water. Water's getting in in places and holes I didn't know I had. That's the image. Right? We hold on for dear life. There's moments we're skidding across the ground, moments where we feel like life is just dragging us behind. We hold on. We keep the faith. That's the point he's making here. What, what's interesting about all these, think about these expressions. Fight the fight. Finish the race. Keep the faith. All of them necessitate an ability to overcome adversity, doesn't it? Don't they? All of these necessitate the ability to overcome adversity. We judge people's IQ. Maybe we should look at our AQ. What do I mean? Instead of our intelligence quotient, maybe it should be our adversity quotient. Do we overcome adversity well? If you're going to fight well, if you're going to finish the race, if you're going to keep the faith, you better be willing to overcome obstacles and adversity for the sake of Jesus Christ. And then lastly, success in all of these lead us somewhere. Number four, what you receive in eternity will be based upon how you fight and run today. Verse 8, he says, henceforth, by the way, notice henceforth, it means 
that the basis of what's happening in verse 8 has, has come because of verse 7. So verse 7, fighting well, finishing well, keeping the faith, leads to verse 8. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all those who love his appearing. What you receive in eternity will be based upon how you fight and run today. I love this, he says, and waiting for me on the end is a crown of righteousness. Now you read this at first glance and it would seem like Paul is being a bit braggadocious. I mean, can you imagine? I can't wait to get to heaven where there'll be crowns for me. There are actually three crowns for believers. This is one of three, the crown of righteousness. And yet, I don't know about you, but I feel like, wait, I don't deserve the crown of righteousness. But notice the wording, it's very, very peculiar here. He says, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the what? righteous judge will give to me. Meaning this is Christ who really is righteous, who really is the victor, who really has won the race that I'm going to attach my life to and as a result I'm going to get a crown that I don't deserve. I don't deserve a crown of righteousness because, but because the Lord is the righteous judge and we love his appearing, I'm going to be connected to the victory that he has won. Now let me put this in, in practical terms. It would be like a Mich Michigan fan becoming an Ohio State fan. It makes sense, doesn't it? Would you not want to be a winner? I just want to hear an amen to that. I mean, that's, that's a good point. This is good. So, so I'm, you're, Ohio, you're a Michigan fan. You now become an Ohio State fan. Why? Because you want to connect your life to a winner. That's what Paul's saying. I'm going to get a crown of righteousness because my life is connected to the Lord of righteousness, the judge of righteousness, who is coming again. I'm able to connect my life to Jesus Christ, and as a result, I get an award I do not deserve. That's the picture. I get something that I do not deserve. And so he says, man, I am, I am living life backwards. I'm living life knowing that the end is going to come, and so as I look at my life, I fight hard. I finish the race. I keep the faith. Why? Because I know in the end I'm going to get something I do not deserve because it's only been God that can get me through this. He says, run the race. Let me ask you, what kind of departure will you have? Everyone here this morning, you're fighting a fight. You're running a race. You're holding on to some kind of faith in something. How will your life end? You might say, Dave, I don't want to think about the end of my life. I want to live life to the fullest. No, no, no. The only way you live life to the fullest is to understand where it ends. And then you work backwards and you're able to enjoy the freedom that we have because in the end, I can't mess this up. In the end, I get a crown of righteousness because I've attached my life to the victor, the judge of the righteous. I, I want you to imagine for a moment that you're sitting at home and you get a frantic phone call on, uh, a phone call on the phone and it's a, a voice of someone on the other line, and they say, so-and-so, sir, ma'am, I have good news for you. We are from the U.S. Olympic Committee, and we have researched and have a database of 275 million people across our country, and we have chosen you to be the one to represent us to run the marathon in the next Olympics. That'd probably be my reaction too, right? And they said, no, 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 we've researched this. We believe you have the best makeup to win the gold at the next Olympics, so we would like to bring you out to our Olympic training center. And, and at first, you think, wait a minute here. <laughs> You're in shock, 
And you think, man, the last run I've made was from my couch to the fridge. And you thought about, when was the last time I actually ran? I mean, maybe I'm not the right person for this. But then you start, then you start to believe. Maybe your spouse looks at you and says, have you ever run in your life? And you respond and said, no, but I better start. And slowly you start to believe, right? All of a sudden you start to believe. Wait, maybe this would be an awesome opportunity. Maybe I am the best. I mean, they have it. They have it. They did a database. I mean, they have me in a, a computer somewhere. They put together that I would be the best option for the Olympic team. And then you start to dream a little bit. All of a sudden, you start to think about the elite athletes you're going to hang around. You start to think about the, the, the banners that will be raised, the flag that will be shown, the national anthem that will be played. And then you start to think about when you bow your head, and there might be that gold medal that goes across your neck representing your country. All of a sudden, everything shifts. You start to believe that this race is what you were created for. You begin to believe that this is actually your destiny. This is what you were born to do. This race becomes the passion of your life. It dominates your mind. It occupies your waking moments. It becomes the central focus of your life, of your existence. You get up early. You go to bed late. Why? Because you are ready to win. Let me say this this morning. The God of the universe, the creator of all, the God who came and died on a cross for us, rose again for us, is coming again for us, now beckons us, calls us in and says, hey, hey, I've got a plan for you. I've got a duty for you. And you're the one I want. You're the one I'm calling. You're the one I'm inviting in. I want you to run a race. I want you to fight a fight. I want you to keep the faith. I want you to finish well. We need you. Now, God is certainly big enough not to have us, but he wants us. And he invites us in. And today... This morning, we make decisions. Today, we make decisions that will affect the journey at the end. Today, we take steps in preparation for how we're going to end this race. Maybe for some of you, you know, you're not running well. Maybe today is the day to set aside sin that so easily is entangling you and run the race with endurance. For some, maybe it's time to start a new habit, to say, man, I need to be a person in the book. I need to be a person of prayer. I need to spend more time with God. Maybe as a spouse, as a couple, you need to spend time in prayer together. Simple, 10 seconds a day, 15 seconds a day. For some, maybe it's someone that God is calling you to share this good news with. You don't have to be eloquent. You don't have to be well-spoken. All you have to do is share your story. And God is saying, I want you to do that. I put you here. It's your race to run. I'm calling you. And today would be the day to say, I'm taking a step. Maybe you're here and you don't know Christ. You are playing a game in another stadium that will always end in loss. And today would be the day that you you open your heart to Christ. You allow him to open your eyes and he leads you into life in him. I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna end with this song in Christ alone. It's in him. Our hope is found. Would you, would you stand with me as we pray? God, what, what amazing words that Paul speaks here and we know it's from your heart, God, from your breath through the apostle Paul to us. God, may we fight the fight. God, that fight is not easy. It's a battle. God, may we finish the race. God, there are obstacles and situations that slow us down. There's times we trip, times we fall, but may we get back up and keep running. God, may we keep the faith. God, in a world that's so easily giving up, may we be a people that hold on for dear life and trust your way as the best way.
to trust your gospel as our calling. May we go forth and share your gospel boldly, unapologetically, in a world that may not hear it because they want their ears scratched. But God, we need to be faithful to it. And in the end, there's a crown of righteousness, which is not ours, but is given to us that then we'll take off and we'll lay down at your feet because we know it's you that are the one that deserves it. You, Jesus, the victor. The one who died, the one who rose again, the one who's coming again. So God, may we find our race, our fight, our faith in you alone, in you, Christ alone, where our hope is found. Your name and your name only, Jesus. Amen. Let's sing this song together.